Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for Concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind that is the mind of Christ. And to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians read through the Book of Concord and discuss what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we're going to start looking at Article 8 from the Epitome of the Formula of Concord, looking at the status of the controversy, that is, what is the issue that needs clear confession with regard to the teaching on the person of Christ? I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point and St. Paul's Wine Hill here in Southern Illinois. And my companion confessor in conversation about this article today is the Reverend Dr. Kirk Clayton. You've heard him here before. He's the pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Mascouda, Illinois. Pastor Clayton, welcome back to Concord Matters. Thank you. It's always good to be with you, and I'm looking forward to our conversations. We dig into the person of Jesus Christ today. Absolutely. As you and I were chatting just before we uh, started the show here, it's it's that second greatest mystery, right? Right behind the Trinity. It's a very important doctrine, but really one that needs a lot of distinction and a lot of discussion. And so it's a great honor to have you on to lead us through that and setting up what this status of the controversy is. And so let's just go ahead and dig right into it here. Again, this is the epitome of the formula of Concord, Article 8, the person of Christ. And of course, on this show, we read through Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord, and that's available to you from Concordia Publishing House, the publishing arm of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. So let's go ahead and get to this article here. This is picking up with paragraph one. From the controversy about the Holy Supper, a disagreement has arisen between the pure theologians of the Augsburg Confession and the Calvinists. The Calvinists have also confused some other theologians about the person of Christ and the two natures in Christ and their properties. So then this is the status of the controversy going on with paragraph two. The chief question, however, has been this. Because of the personal union, do the divine and human natures and also their properties really have communion with each other? In other words, in deed and truth, do the divine and human natures commune with each other in the person of Christ, and how far does this communion extend? The sacramentarians have asserted that the divine and human natures in Christ are united personally in such a way that neither one has real communion. This means, in deed and truth, that they do not share with the other nature what is unique to either nature. They share nothing more than the name alone, for they plainly say, the personal union does nothing more than make the names common. In other words, God is called man, and man is called God. Yet this happens in such a way that the divine has no real communion, that is, in deed and truth, with humanity. And humanity has nothing in common with divinity, its majesty, and properties. Dr. Luther and those who agreed with him have contended against the sacramentarians for the contrary teaching. All right, that's as much as we're going to read from this section here. That sets up the status of the controversy. And Dr. Clayton, basically this all comes about, based on that first paragraph, that when the Lutherans defended the real presence of Jesus in the sacrament, that's Article 7 that we've been covering for the last several weeks. Uh, I think it took us four weeks to get through that. It became evident then to the Lutherans that there was actually serious differences between the two groups, the Calvinists, the Reformed, the Sacramentarians, with regard to Christology, that is, the doctrine of Christ, of who we say Jesus really is. And we kept pointing to that as we went through it the last four weeks that, yeah, really, what is at issue here is it's really all about who is Christ and what do we say about him. So go ahead and jump us into how do we rightly understand this controversy here, Dr. Clayton? Well, in the Christian church, ultimately, almost everything will come back to Jesus Christ, who he is, what he has done, his work for us, and the blessings that he gives us. And so as you worked through the previous article, Article 7, on the Lord's Supper, 
there are misunderstandings that take place in the nature of the sacraments that are tied to who Jesus is as both true God and true man. And since we are, after all, the Christian Church, it's not at all surprising that we spend a huge amount of time talking about Christ in the Christian Church, who he is, what he does for us, and how we understand this great mystery that God, who has certain characteristics, certain attributes, and man, who have certain attributes, are joined in one in a way that God becomes man. And we look at the person of Jesus Christ and see in that man true God dwelling in the fullness of his deity. This is a tremendous, tremendous mystery. It has direct implications to the understanding of the Lord's Supper specifically. Is it possible for a real man, a real human body, to be present in, with, and under the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper in a way that maintains that he is still actually a real human being? And so that's why this article, Article 8, on the person of Jesus Christ flows directly out of Article 7 that you've just finished studying, the understanding of the Lord's Supper. Because if Jesus is rightly to be understood, as he should be, as a true physical human being, then it is, granted, difficult. It is correct, but it is difficult to understand that Jesus is also truly present in, with, and under the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper with his body and blood. Now, as an example of this, due to the coronavirus restrictions, you and I are not able to be together in the studio at KFUO in St. Louis. You are in your office in Campbell Hill, Illinois. I am in my office in Mascuda, Illinois. We are about 60 miles apart. And as we each have a physical human body, we cannot both be in the same places at the same times. But that is exactly what we say about Jesus Christ, who is true man with a true physical body in the Lord's Supper, that he is present with his body and his blood in with and under the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper in many places at the same time. Now, if you and I could do that, it, it would have made this recording session much easier, right? But we can't. So how is it that Jesus can, as a true human being, who's also truly God, be present in the Lord's Supper, in his sacramental presence, in his body and blood, with the bread and the wine, in many places at one time. That is kind of why Article 8 flows out of Article 7, because they're very, very closely related topics. So that's the kind of the theological context of where we're at in Article 8 of the Epitome of the Formula of Concord. Now, the political context of what drives us here is that in Wittenberg, the very university where Luther taught for much of his adult life, much of the faculty had become more influenced by Swingley and Calvin and their reformed view of the sacraments and then, by extension of the person of Jesus Christ, then they were maintaining to Luther's own proper scriptural teaching. And so this article takes place in the context of what comes to be called the crypto-Calvinistic controversy, in that many of the leading teachers at the University of Wittenberg were crypto-Calvinists. They were silent, quiet, hidden Calvinists while professing to be Lutheran. Now, they knew that in Wittenberg, of all places, they couldn't openly say, oh, by the way, I'm a Calvinist. Oh, by the way, I think Luther was wrong, and I'm going to you know, wholeheartedly endorse the teaching of Calvin or Zwingli. They knew they couldn't do that, so they stayed somewhat hidden. They were crypto-Calvinists, and yet they were trying to influence the theology of the area of Saxony to be more in line with Calvinist teachings than with true Lutheran teachings, which then also, while difficult to understand rationally, are absolutely faithful to the revealed Word of God in Scripture. The way they did this is a couple of the professors at the Wittenberg faculty were very, very close allies of the elector of Saxony, Elector August, at this point. 
and they tried to twist the elector's ear to make Calvinism more palatable to him. Now, they bumped into a little problem in that they wrote a letter which was misdelivered, and uh, a little court intrigue here, to try to sway the elector's wife, Anna. They figured if they could get Anna, then Anna would impose upon Elector August, and crypto-Calvinism would, would win the day. They spell out this plan, which is then hand-delivered directly to the elector, who then sees the deception going on, realizes that he's been played for some time by the crypto-Calvinists, and ends up doing a bit of a house-cleaning at Wittenberg, which then leads to the writing of the Formula of Concord, as the elector now turns away from the crypto-Calvinists as his theological guides and turns instead to faithful Lutheran men such as Martin Chemnitz, and cleans house and restores authentic Lutheran teaching, which is authentic scriptural teaching, to his region of Saxony, and then by means of the gift of the Formula of Concord to the Church. So that, I think, kind of sets up both the theological and the political realm that we're in as we get into Article 8, the person of Christ. That's a great overview, and clearly both are at work. I like how you frame that for us, that the matter of the formula of Concord, as with all of the Lutheran confessions, and as we still see in the world and church today, there are matters of theology at work, and we certainly are concerned about those. But there's usually, for lack of a better term, maybe political and or you know just other things going on at the same time that are impacting maybe sometimes the theology. And we certainly talked about this with the Lord's Supper, that when it comes to the unity that we all desire to have in the Christian church, the unity that we are promised in Christ by the Holy Spirit, sometimes we look for that unity in sort of our human arrangements, if you will. And so we'll forsake doctrine and theology and things like that and try to make these political arrangements and ignore points of doctrine in order to have this unity, but that doesn't actually bring us unity. And so what matters is that we have to recognize that the two go together. And so I think you framed that really well for us. And so now let's break that down a little bit. I want to return to the, oh, go ahead, go ahead. And in fact, when someone says something like, well, I'm really not saying anything different than has been said before, but (laughs) this does not lead to Christian unity. This instead leads to Christian disunity. And so people will almost never introduce a new doctrine, which, by the way, is usually called a heresy, into the Church by just flat out saying, I'm going to say something different from what the Church has said for 1,500 years, or in our case, 2,000 years. Usually they couch it in terms that say, well, we're really saying basically the same thing. But that hedging on, we're really saying basically the same thing, or saying, we're saying the same thing we always have, but that hedge brings disunity. And so this was the problem that, unfortunately, Philip Melanchthon fell into. He would not take a clear stand on many of these issues. Maybe he was such a scholar that he he didn't want to make a definitive statement that might have been wrong one way or another, whatever the case is. But Melanchthon would not take a stand one way or another and allowed a lot of kind of shenanigans to go on around him of people saying, well, you know, we're really being faithful to Lutheranism, but, you know, here's just a little bit different nuance, perhaps. Well, this is divisive. And so what Chemnitz and what the other then Lutheran fathers realize is the way that you bring unity is not by intricately worded mere statements or tweaking things or kind of bending a little bit. Those bring argument, those bring dissension, those bring in all sorts of questionable results. Instead, The way that you bring unity is you confess the truth clearly, steadfastly, unequivocally, and you simply state the truth, and those that are of the truth rally to it. When you speak in crypto-Calvinist ways, when you say, well, we're saying the same thing, but kind of, you invite division, 
Instead, when you confess, this is where we have conflict. This is where we stand. Here I stand, as Luther says, I can do no other, so help me God. That is what rallies unity, when there's a clear, distinctive, definitive statement of faith. This works for the unity of church, not deceptively worded half measures. And is the whole point of the show, right, is that we would be exactly. of the one mind, the mind of Christ. And, and, and that's the whole point of our Lutheran confessions. Like, I'm not even patting this show on the back or anything like that. It's literally just our purpose in Christianity is that we recognize that Christ is the truth and we want to confess with Christ what is true, what Scripture says. And so when we start setting things aside and, and looking for compromise and looking for unity, our unity can only be in Christ. And if Christ is the truth, that means our unity can only be in the truth. All right. So let's break this down a little bit to the theological matters, the political matters. And I, I want to start with something that you brought up in the first part under the matter of theology that you were laying out for us. And you brought in, I think, an excellent example of how normally when I would have you on, we would meet in St. Louis and we'd be at the studios at KFO at the International Center of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. And that's really great because we can see each other and, and, and it's easier to have a natural conversation there, right? But because of the stay-at-home orders and distance and the International Center being closed, it just wasn't going to work for us to meet there at the studio, right? And so you're on the phone, I'm here in my office, and we're recording this. And some people might even say, well, you know, but we're together in spirit. You know, our culture likes to use that. We're still together in spirit. We're at least able to talk to one another and things like that. And there's a way in which the Reformed would talk about this when it comes to the person of Christ, especially in the previous controversy when it comes to the Lord's Supper. They have no problem with a spiritual togetherness, a spiritual presence of Christ present everywhere, but we're not comfortable with that. We're saying that's not good enough when it comes to Christ because Christ actually says, here is my body, here is my blood. Those are the words that he used. So go ahead and talk about why is that not sufficient? Why is the spiritual being together in spirit not sufficient when it comes to the person of Christ? Well, this is a, a really interesting situation that we're in. I guess I could say, as the sacramentarians would say, that I can spiritually ascend to the heaven that is Campbell Hill and commune with you by telephone in the glory that is your office, and we can be together. Well, I'm sorry. Baloney! No, we're not. <laughs> we are 60 miles apart in every fact. The fact that we're talking on the phone does not mean that we are together. And so in the Lord's Supper, if we say that my spirit ascends into heaven, and as I remember the sacrifice of Christ, I commune through memory with the spiritual presence of Christ as he is seated at the right hand of God. This is not communion. <laughs> this is separation. Now, the challenge is that as having physical bodies, you and I cannot be in both places at one time. And so there is a very real theological concern regarding the person of Christ, that if we say that Jesus is present in multiple places at one time, we then do run the risk of denying that Jesus truly still physically maintains a human body. However, we remember that this physical body of Christ is present at the right hand of God. Where is the right hand of God where Jesus is physically present? The right hand of God is present where God places his right hand to be present. We do not tell God, you may or may not do this or that. And so we would never, as Lutherans, ascribe limits to God on what he can or cannot do, and what Jesus does, the fullness of Jesus Christ does. We do not separate the works of the human nature from the works of the divine nature. And so what we say Jesus does, we say that the person of Jesus Christ, who is true God and true man, does together. Now, this is really obscure. It is. And it is very difficult. In fact, I might even say it is impossible for us to rationally understand. 
And this is another major difference between a Lutheran understanding and a Calvinist or crypto-Calvinist understanding of theology. And I bump into this almost every time I have a conversation about the person and work of Jesus Christ or about the sacraments with someone who's influenced by Calvinism. A Calvinist will always lead with reason and logic. A Lutheran will lead with the clear words of Christ from Scripture. This is a very different starting point. And as a Lutheran, I will then very quickly say, I can't logically explain the position that I believe, but I can show you where Scripture very clearly teaches this. And if Scripture teaches it, I am going to subject my human reason to the words of God in Scripture, trusting that God's wisdom is greater than my wisdom. I am not going to use my wisdom to tell God, you may or may not do this or that. That is an abuse of the use of human reason. Whereas a Calvinist will say, well, God would never give reason to contradict it, but we would place Scripture on a higher authority than human reason. And so there are challenges in the personal union of Jesus Christ as these come to be expressed in the understanding of the real presence in the Lord's Supper. There are challenges. There absolutely are. And that's why we started the show by saying, this is a mystery. This is sometimes described as the second greatest mystery in all theology, behind the workings of the Trinity itself. How is God three and yet one, indivisible and yet not the same? This is a mystery, and the human mind is never going to comprehend this. We simply need to take a step back and, in reverent faith, submit our human reason to the superior wisdom of God and say that this side of eternity, and maybe the other side of eternity, I am not going to understand entirely the personal union of Jesus Christ or how it is that he, with a real, literal, physical human body, is present in the Lord's Supper in multiple places at multiple times, whereas you and I can't be separated by 60 miles no telephone line. I will not understand that. We can explain it based on the words of Scripture that Jesus gives, but we cannot place our reason above Scripture and deny what Scripture says so that it makes sense to us. Well, and just to clarify here just a little bit, and I, I'm maybe having a little bit of deja vu. Maybe you and I have talked about this on the show before. Or maybe I've just talked about this on the show several times. But just to clarify here, too, when you say that it kind of defies reason and logic, we want to clarify what we mean by that is worldly reason and logic. And even there, we need to be careful because clearly, as I've asserted on this show many times, the very works of the Lutheran confessions contained in the Book of Concord are excellent pieces of reason and logic, especially Melanchthon in the writing of the Augsburg Confession, Apology of the Augsburg Confession, but even the, the writers here of the Formula of Concord, well-trained, well beyond many of us today in doing these works of reason and logic. And even the word logic itself is really helpful for us here in understanding why we Lutherans take the approach we do, because if we look at the etymology of the word logic, it comes from the Greek word logos. And that word shows up for us in John chapter 1 and reveals that the divine logos, the word of God, takes on human flesh. That's the incarnation. At the very heart of this is Jesus himself, who is God, the divine logos, that takes on human flesh and makes his dwelling here among us. And so we're not saying that our position as Lutherans is illogical or that we can't use logic or can't use reason. What we have to be clear on is that we are using the divine logos, the divine logic, the logic of God, the reason of God. And I think that that's what you're getting at when you say we submit our reason to that. That's putting our minds on the things above and how God works rather than on the things of man here and what we see and experience. And that really seems, at least for me, to be the tension between the Reformed and the Lutheran is what is our starting place? And we often make this argument also when it comes to the Roman Catholic, right? They start with human traditions and Roman Catholicism, and the Reformed start with human reason and logic, whereas for us as Lutherans and as Orthodox-believing Christians have always begun, we start with the divine reason and logic of God. This is what he tells us is true. Right. 
and a, another very helpful distinction in that is that we're bumping against the very handy terms of the magisterial versus the ministerial use of reason. And you're exactly right. Please, let's be clear and not misunderstand. I'm not saying that we never use logic or never use reason, but we use it in a ministerial sense, in a service to the Word of God. We would respect logic and reason so far as we can, but we would never say that it trumps the Word of God. We use reason, and we do use reason, we respect reason tremendously, in a ministerial sense, in service of the revealed Word, never as the overrider of the revealed Word. All right, that is an important clarification and distinction, especially as it relates to paragraphs 2 and 3, as we understand what Scripture reveals to us about communion of the two natures in Christ, which we will pick up after this break. You're listening to Concord Matters. This is Pastor Brian Wolfmuller inviting you to join me every Monday afternoon on Cross Defense, 2 o'clock to 3 o'clock here on KFUO Radio, where we take up curious topics, curious Christian topics, to excite our imaginations, equip our minds, and comfort our consciences with the supreme and beautiful clarity of God's Word. It happens on Cross Defense every Monday afternoon, 2 to 3, here on KFUO. Please make plans to join us. And if you can't join us live, check out the podcast at kfuo.org. And welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue talking with the Reverend Dr. Kirk Clayton, who is, in fact, not together with me as we normally would be. We were talking about that in the first half of the show. This together in spirit thing is just not good enough, brother. But we are thankful, nonetheless, for the means that allows you to continue to be a guest on the show with us today. So thank you for that. And as we push forward here, I want to chat with you a little more about the second two paragraphs here. The first half of the show, we spent a good bit of time talking about paragraph one and the connections to the Lord's Supper and all of the issues connected with that. And you laid out really well for us the theological issues, the political issues, and we recognize that that's always kind of the tension that we live in. And what we need all through it is clear confession. In my mind, especially when we get into these next two paragraphs then here, paragraphs two and three, as a I guess I should say we're covering the Article 8, a reminder that Article 8, the epitome of the formula of Concord, the person of Christ. And as we get into paragraphs 2 and 3 of this article, my mind just goes to Nestorianism, that ancient error that was held um, around 451. That's when the Council of Chalcedon really dealt with that Nestorianism error and gave clear confession on that. And again, this kind of makes the point for me that this is the whole purpose of the church on earth. Well, that's a wrong statement. This, this is not the whole purpose of the church on <laughs> of Christ on earth, but this is a purpose of the church of Christ on earth, that as we live in faith, that we confess the truth of Christ so that we may have comfort for consciences. That's the purpose of the church on earth, right, is delivered that comfort that Christ gives to us as eternal salvation. So we definitely want to get there. But in making sure that we have the certainty of that, we want clear confession. We want the truth as Jesus gives it to us. He is the divine logos, the the divine logic and reason for us. And we want to hold to what he has. And Nestorianism just seems to be at work behind here. That's that's that old idea that uh, Christ held two natures. It was a way of trying to explain the incarnation, which is ultimately what we're doing here. We pointed to it several times that we're, we're trying to explain what God tells us is true, that Jesus took on human flesh. But Nestorianism creates a tension between the two natures of Christ so much so that it really kind of creates two persons. There's the human person and the divine. And the example I at least usually give for this is the old beloved Christmas song, Away in a Manger, right? It says, no crying he makes. It's trying to make it a point that this is the divine Jesus laying there, and God would never cry. He would never be a a colicky baby or anything of that nature, right? Now, I'm not saying that that's specifically, I don't know that it's actually confessing that error, but it, it certainly gives you that feeling that it could be what's behind those words. And so we always want to make sure and understand that when Jesus was laying there in the manger, he was a real man. 
he probably kept his mother up at night. I don't know. But certainly we want the clear confession. So go ahead and take us into these next two paragraphs and help us understand here what is going on with these two natures and staying clear of the Nestorianism error. Well, to pick up with paragraph two, I'll just read this again so we can remember where we are in Article H of the Epitome. The chief question, however, has been this. Because of the personal union, do the divine and human natures and also their properties really have communion with each other? That really is the question that we see in the Nestorian heresy. The Nestorian heresy would answer this question, do the divine and human natures and also the properties really have communion with each other? They would answer that question by saying, no, the divine nature is and remains the divine nature. The human nature is and remains the human nature. And there really is no communication of attributes between these two, between the divine and the human nature. And so the analogy that's often used to describe Nestorianism is that Nestorianism views the two natures of Jesus Christ, the divine nature and the human nature, as two separate boards that are glued together. And so imagine that you have a, a six-inch one-by-four and another six-inch one-by-four, and you slather some Elmer's wood glue on one side or the other or both. You put them together with a vice grip and let them dry. And now you have, instead of two one-by-fours, uh, you have a, you know, a two-by-four. But the one board doesn't really do anything to the other. It's simply two things that are forcibly held together, and you could peel them apart without really changing the nature of either one. And so the left board remains the left board. The right board remains the right board. And there's really no penetration of the one into the other. That essentially is what Nestorianism says, or to get back to the text of Article 8 of the Epitome, Paragraph 2, do the divine and human natures and also their properties really have communion with each other? Again, Nestorianism would say no. And so that's where you bring up the issue of when we look at Jesus Christ in the manger, do we see something that is in some way distinctly different than what I would see when I looked into the cradle and saw any of my six children. Nestorianism would say yes. <laughs> we would say no. And so whatever Jesus did as a human child, he did both according to his divine nature and his human nature according to a right scriptural understanding. And so, when Mary would change the swaddling clothes of baby Jesus, well, and, and let's first say, Mary would have had to have changed the swaddling clothes of baby Jesus, because he was a true, complete, natural human being. He was human in every way like we are. And so, when Mary changed the swaddling clothes of baby Jesus, she changed God's swaddling clothes. And God, in the person of Jesus Christ, needed his swaddling clothes changed. This, this seems impious for us to think in this way, and that's probably what led to the heresy of Nestorianism. It seems impious to ascribe to God such lowly human features. And yet, if God truly becomes one with man, in the person of Christ Jesus, you cannot separate what Jesus does into, well, that's his divine and that's his human sides doing it. That's the story. And so Mary would change the swaddling clothes of God. God would cry out in hunger as a baby. God would receive nourishment from his mother, Mary, and push that back even a little further we would confess with the faithful church that Mary then gave birth to God. Mary is, the technical term is the Theotokos, the bearer of God, the mother of God. That is how closely the divine nature and the human nature are combined in Jesus Christ. You can't 
pull them apart as one pulls one board away from another that are merely wood glued together down the middle. Now, there is uh, another error, error on the other side of things. The, the problem with Christian doctrine is there tend to be many, many ways to get Christian doctrine wrong. There is only one way to get it right. And so if Nestorianism falls into the ditch on one side of the proper understanding of the person of Christ, then a false doctrine called Eutychianism falls into the ditch on the other side. Nestorianism says there really is no communication of attributes between the divine and the human nature. Eutychianism then goes to the other side and falls in the ditch on the other side of the road and says that there is such complete communication of attributes between the divine and the human nature that it results kind of in a different thing, <laughs> and that Jesus then is not really God in the way to think of God, and he's not really human in the way that we think of human. He is a different type of being. And the, the terms are slippery here, and I hope I'm not causing problems. But Eutychus would say that the, the result of it is that Jesus is not human in the same way that we are, but he is something different. We can't necessarily look at Jesus in the true literal sense and say, he is a man, as you are a man, as I as a man. He is something else. Now, the problem there is that if Jesus is not truly and fully man as we are, then he cannot take our place under the law and be our substitute in the work of salvation. And so this question of the second paragraph of Article 8 of the Epitome, do the divine and human natures also the properties really have communion with each other, is really a search to go down the the very narrow center of the road without either falling into Nestorianism on the one side or into Eutychianism on the other side, that we say that Jesus is truly both God and man, and that he maintains fully the attributes of the divine and the attributes of the human, but that as we look at Jesus Christ, everything that we see in Jesus Christ, we ascribe to Jesus Christ, not to God, not to man, but to Jesus Christ, who is both God and man. We see this working out, for example, in our catechetical teaching with our students, probably, using the terms the state of humiliation and the state of exaltation. We recognize that throughout most of Jesus' ministry, he worked in what we call the state of humiliation. He looked, acted completely like the 100% real human being that he was. And yet, the state of humiliation does not deny the state of exaltation that is still present at the same time. So even in the state of humiliation, Jesus is still and remains truly and fully God. Now, switching the state of exaltation, which we see more clearly after Jesus' death and burial, beginning with his descent into hell to proclaim victory, and then in his resurrection, ascension, and being seated at the right hand of God, Jesus maintains his full human nature. And so the state of exaltation does not remove the state of humiliation. And Jesus is always, from the moment of the Incarnation, both true God and true man. So I, I oftentimes ask my confirmands this question, and it's kind of a, a gotcha trick question. I ask, when did Jesus stop being a human being? And usually someone will say right away, oh, well, when he ascended up into heaven. No. The fact that Jesus is now more commonly seen in the state of exaltation and his divine nature is more clearly recognized does not change the fact that Jesus is still truly, completely a human being. And so, who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God in majesty and glory? A human being. Jesus will always be a human being, even as he has always been divine. His human nature began at his incarnation as the divine nature joined to it, and from that time on, they will never be separated. Jesus is and remains true God and true man with a true communion of attributes from one to the other.
I think you've done an excellent job of laying that out here for us. And I want to bring it home to this point for us. Well, and, and let me say first, I think you're right that the there's a thousand ways to get this wrong, right? <laughs> I think one of the most frustrating things for me in seminary was trying to keep all the heresy straight. And I really hated when there were questions on tests uh, about which, which particular heresy is this uh, and, and trying to nail that down because sometimes there's a lot of bleeding into one or the other and, and it's really kind of difficult to keep them all straight. And even to this day, I keep a chart here in my office just to kind of reference them, especially as I go through things on this show. And so I think you've laid that out really well for us. And then why does all of this matter? Why does the issue of Nestorianism, especially as we see this no real communion between the natures as it's highlighted here in these, why does this become an issue? Why does it matter that as it says here, that this means that they do not share with the other nature what is unique to either nature? And they say nothing more than the name alone. Why does it matter that the two natures actually come together in Christ? In a word, salvation. If a man only died on the cross on Good Friday, then we are still in our sins. And, by contrast, if something other than a man died on the cross on Good Friday, then we are still in our sins. Only when the true personal union of God and man in the person of Jesus Christ dies for us on the cross do we find hope and salvation. That's why this article is so important. That's why it was important to add an Article 8 after they'd already hinted at this in Article 7, because really our understanding of salvation itself is at stake. And there are problems here, both if we look at Nestorianism and if we look at Eutychianism. Both take away our hope of salvation in the death of the person, Jesus Christ, on the cross. If we fall into the error on either side, then we lose our salvation. So let's look maybe at Eutychianism first. Remember, Eutychianism says that due to too much communication of the attributes, that Jesus is different from we are regarding our human nature. Jesus is a different being than we are. Well, part of the doctrine of the atonement is that a man dies in the place of humanity. And if something other than man is hanging on the cross, we no longer have the substitution, the sacrifice of one human for the rest of humanity. And so the satisfaction of the sacrifice on the cross comes undone if Jesus is anything other than a complete and full human being. That's the problem if we fall into Eutychianism. It becomes a problem of salvation at the cross. What dies on the cross? If what is hanging on the cross is different in humanity than we are, then our sin can't transfer to that which is different from us. And so what is hanging on the cross, it's very important that it is fully human as we are, and Eutychianism denies that. And what There's you're getting the at there, right, is Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, where St. Paul clearly tells us in God's holy word that it's through one man that sin entered into the world, and so it's got to be through one man that all are saved, right? This is what's at stake, too, is the clear confession of Scripture itself. Right, that a man must make that sacrifice. For example, all the sheep and goats and bulls of the Old Testament pointed to the sacrifice of the man, Jesus Christ, but they couldn't do it because they weren't human. Only a human can fulfill the guilt of humanity. And so that's why we say that Jesus is and remains truly and fully human. But now the problem with Nestorianism on the, the ditch on the other side of the road is that if the two natures of Jesus Christ don't really fully have communication with each other, and what happens to the human nature of Jesus doesn't really happen to the divine nature of Jesus, then what we have is the situation where only 
a man dies on the cross. A man truly dies on the cross, but only the man. We do not ascribe the death on the cross then to his divine nature. We say that we only talk about the divine nature is dying on the cross, but it didn't really happen because God in his attributes cannot die. Now, what happens there? Well, there have been a lot of people that have died on crosses. Just to bring one obvious one up from church history and tradition, we are told that according to tradition, St. Peter died on the cross. Well, guess what? I'm not saved because Peter died on the cross. He was a man, a good man, but a man only. And if nothing more than a man dies on the cross, that death does not transfer to me. Only when there is full communication of the attributes, when we can say that the divine nature fully participates in the human nature, can we see our salvation. That this death of the man Jesus Christ on the cross applies to me, and not just to that man on the cross, because that man on the cross is God, and God is doing his saving work through this. There is a powerful statement of this in one of our hymns, and I realize that, as we talked about in the first half hour of the program, we draw our doctrine not from reason, not from human intelligence, but from Scripture, and Scripture then flows into the Confessions, as kind of the next level of teaching, and I realize our hymns don't rise to either of these levels, but there is an amazing testimony of the proper understanding of the communication of attributes, the two natures in the person of Jesus Christ, in one of our Lenten hymns in the Lutheran service book. This is in the Holy Week section. It is hymn 448. The hymn is called, O Darkest Woe, and stanza two has a powerful, powerful statement that reflects this. This is, while it's not confessional, it's not scriptural, it is a true statement of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Stanza 2 of LSB hymn 448, O Darkest Woe, reads this way, O sorrow dread, our God is dead. That is a stunning, stunning statement. It takes your breath away when you sing it. Our God is dead. This can't be. God is eternal. God is immortal. God is life. And yet we rightly confess in this hymn, O sorrow dread, our God is dead. Now this hymn was originally written in German, and this is a faithful translation of what the German says. The German originally is, O grosse note, God selbst ist tot. God selbst ist tot. God himself, God him, his own being, God himself is dead. It's what this hymn confesses. Now, <laughs> this is something that is so foreign to our ears that this actually has not always been the way this has been translated. God selbst is tot has sometimes been translated as God's son is dead or God's son is slain, adding just a little bit of a degree of separation. But LSB has gone with a very literal and theologically correct translation, O sorrow dread, our God is dead. And then our God bursts forth in new life and Easter and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ because it is participated in fully by the divine nature also becomes our death and resurrection. And so if you lose either the communication of attributes or overdo the communication of attributes so that something other than a man dies on the cross or so that God is not fully involved in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross to the point that we can say with the hymn, O sorrow dread, our God is dead, then our salvation is not accomplished on the cross. When we look to the cross and we see that God and man are so perfectly united that everything that Jesus does, he does according to both natures, then we see that not only is our substitute hanging there on the cross, but God then, in his marvelous work, brings this gift to us. And as we see Jesus, true God and true man, hanging dead on the cross, we say, there, 
And that understanding alone, there is our salvation. I think this is a really great point that you have made here and brought in. And just to clarify a little bit again, too, I I know what you're saying and just want to be real clear on this, that when you say that the hymn is not confessional, what you mean by that, obviously, is that no pastor is asked at his ordination or installation if he submits to hymns, right? We submit to scripture and our Lutheran confessions and profess that all of our preaching and teaching and work as a pastor in the church will submit to those. And so I'm with you there. However, we can say that the hymn must be confessional and why I think it's really great, this example that you have given us, that the hymn at different times has had different translations that is not faithful to scripture and our Lutheran confessions. And so it needed to be returned to the proper translation because that's how heresy gets in. I often say the easiest way to get heresy into the church is through our singing because we just, and even our culture does this, right? We get attached to things because it has a sweet melody or whatever it may be and just feels powerful to us. And so we like singing it, but then all of a sudden we realize, oh wait, that's been leading me in a false confession, a wrong confession. And so when we say that this should be a confessional hymn, we're not saying that we submit to it as our proper teaching in the church, but that it must be submitted to our proper teaching. And this is why some songs never get included as hymns in our Lutheran churches, even though other Christian traditions may sing them, because they confess something that is not confessional with Scripture first and our Lutheran confessions, which have stood the test of time to be faithful, right? Yeah, and so, again, I think a, a quick distinction would be that we do not draw our doctrine from our hymns. We draw our doctrine from the teaching of Christ through Scripture, and that is expounded through the Lutheran confessions. We don't draw our doctrine from the hymns, but our hymns certainly must and do confess our doctrine, and they do so clearly. And that doctrine is all drawn together in the gospel, the confession of Jesus Christ for our salvation, which is an excellent point that you have certainly made for us today. I thank you so much for that and for joining us again for Concord Matters. That's Reverend Dr. Kirk Clayton, who is the pastor at Zion Lutheran Church in Mascouda, Illinois. We thank him for joining us for this clear confession of the gospel, salvation in Jesus Christ, as it relates to this article and teaching of our faith, the person of Christ. Thank you, and thank you, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church. 